the subject for the evening talk is the way of meditation. It's probably become apparent to many over the years that one of the initial attractions towards Dharma teachings, Eastern spirituality, is the place of meditation. And for a number of people, it has been the, the spark, the stepping stone from everyday life and the conventions that go along with it to an inquiry and an, and an exploration which outwardly takes on a different or an unusual kind of appearance. And it's quite often in our everyday world that you and I have been brought up in that understanding, knowledge, intelligence, whatever, comes through the world of language and communication and essentially through the passing and exchange of information. And we have come to a remarkable degree of living in such a world where the world of words play an immense part, not only in our outer life, but also and equally in our inner life, manifesting as the variety and ranges of thoughts that go on with ourselves. And it's therefore not so surprising that in the West we have become attracted to something which shows and presents a fairly stark alternative to that, that instead of making information, knowledge, formal ways of learning the priority, it's as though we wish almost to enter into a kind of different kind of school, a different way of learning, a different way of understanding. And directly or indirectly, we may have heard about a meditation and perhaps the general associations that accompany meditation for us is one in which there's largely the absence of. And this absence of, this putting aside, seems to draw us, perhaps slowly and quietly, to something else which is different from what we've learnt different from what we've memorized and distinctly different from all that information which we have accumulated, of which 99 is utterly useless. And so the field of meditation, retreats, Buddhism, Dharma uh, and other traditions as well, of course, have been such, as I said, that the initial entry into all of this has been meditation. And the motives which have supported the movement into meditation may vary quite considerably from one person to another, ranging from some curiosity to uh, the intentions to work on pressure and stress to wondering and curious about what is meditation, what does it mean to go deep into oneself, and many other motives as well. For some, there is the recognition and appreciation that the meditation 
not only has a value unto itself, meaning in other words, even if none of what we do here had any bearing, nor any relationship, nor any connection whatsoever with anything anywhere else, I would still be giving retreats. I would still say these times of silence and stillness and present and respect for the earth still has great importance, even if there was no flow on whatsoever from here to anywhere else. And I still suspect as well with regard to meditation that even if it was in the circumstances of existence that it had absolutely no bearing on what we did and what we said and where we went and who we were with or whatever, that still these facilities would be used and the resources would be used because even in a brief period of time of receptivity to silence and presence, there's some, for some and hopefully for all, some sense that there's something else which can unfold and be discovered in a way which all the thinking about and all the intellectualization and all the cleverness and abstract ideas can't possibly approach nor get close to. And that recognition was a recognition that's been born and acknowledged for generations upon generations that there are places where conceptual life, where imagination life, thinking life has no way of approaching. And plenty of times we've seen and acknowledged surely enough in ourselves that we think and we think and we believe and we believe and we learn and we learn and we learn and then we perhaps sense, but what good is it all? For what? And it's as though we've been concentrated as a culture and as a society on one little corner of our inner life called the mental life, the cerebral life. We've specialized so much in all of that that there's been a neglect elsewhere. And that neglect elsewhere means, firstly, we recognize some of the limitations. Some of the limitations of the conceiving, thinking mind and in recognizing the limitations of that, as I said, perhaps it just helps to bring about a little possibility. There's more to life than that small dynamic that's going on in my head. In the acknowledgement and the recognition of the, uh, in a way, the limitations of the mind, all the ways that it might show itself, we then, for some, look to what relevance and place does meditation have to address that issue. I've said a few times over, over the years, people in this world for whom I have uh, deep love and affection, who either I know personally or I know of, that one of the characteristics, common features, pretty well without exception, is that all of them have known what it is to spend a great deal of time in their life for silence, for 
awarenesses, for meditations, for the non-conceptual world. For some, of course, it has been imposed of them. I'm thinking of Mandela. For some of them, like Aung San Suu Kyi, who spent five or six years under house arrest and virtually still is, and who said to myself last year, she said, Vipassana, save me. She said, the practice of Vipassana, moment to moment, day by day, in that five to six year period, kept me sane, kept me stable. She says, don't forget, I went two and a half years without knowing anything about what was happening to my children or my husband. Not easy. And many others, of course. So there's something about silence and meditative awarenesses and stillness in life which can have a deep and profound effect on the psyche and, as it were, bring the best out of us. And so we say to ourselves, I want to expose myself to that. I want to, I want to see what the relevance, if any, of that is in my life. Therefore I come into the field, into the, into the social environment, in fact, of meditation. Why is it that it's been spoken of with such love and dedication by people who really have something very profound to share with this world? What is this relationship? When we look at the two areas of meditation, meditative awareness, the silence of things, they essentially fall into two areas. And here again, in looking at ourselves, in this specific situation, we in the knowing of ourselves, is to check in with ourselves, where are we in this? One area is the area of calmness and relaxation. And to some degree, though it's often called vipassana meditation, vipassana meaning uh, insight, actually it's calmness insight meditation, and the two are working together. And what that means is that in the process of the meditation, quite a considerable degree of time and attention in the sitting, walking, standing, reclining is given to a relationship to one's being which contributes to its welfare and its relaxation. To some degree, of course, the silence itself, the um, multiple kindnesses of the, the situation here, the welfare and support that's being given to each and every one of us means that we're less, for the most part, in struggle and in, uh, and in a state of intensity with our environment. Taking the pressure off that allows heart, mind and body to relax. So even if one didn't use any method or technique here whatsoever, simply stayed with the silence, if one had, as we once had in uh, on a retreat in India, where I think it was Czechoslovakian or Polish person who couldn't speak a single word of English and didn't understand a word, who sat on the retreat, couldn't follow the instructions, just looked around to see what others were doing and, and did that, saw others were walking slowly, oh, that's all right, did that, etc. No translator and went through the ten days, and I remember uh, at the end of the ten days, she came up to me and gave me a Ramdas-style hug and just appreciation and gratitude because the well-being, calmness, relaxation and presence 
all was taking place without just by being in the environment, just by sitting, just by walking, just by attending to the moment in whatever way that she understood that to be during the time. So there's one feature of it is the area of uh, calmness and relaxation. At the physical aspect of this when it's occurring, of course posture can create and generate some pain which is arising. And one attends to that as much as one can do. And again, to some degree, it's a kind of congestion, we could say, a pressure, a tightness with the cellular life. And the relaxation coming from within makes some contribution, hopefully, to the dissolution of some of those pains and tensions, so that things, one feels more at ease with one's physical life. All of that's part of the rhythm and flow of each and every meditation. To bring the calmness of being, calm awareness, relaxed way to whatever we attend to. And sometimes we forget that when there is pain in the body, which is an object which is unpleasant, unwelcome, unwanted, uninvited, etc. And we are attending to it, working with it exploring it, looking where it's strong and weak, going to the outer edges of it, going to the central place of it or, or whatever. When we are attending to it, it's not only a fact of learning to be at home with ourselves, but to remember as well, that object, whether we call it the knee or the back or the headache or whatever, does and will appear to us in numerous other situations. It just happens to be localised, close at hand, at the present moment, called back, called knee, or whatever. And similarly, how's our relationship to the pain of others? How's our relationship to the tension of others? To the difficulty of others? The pressure from others? So to some degree, the working with ordinary object life in the body can and does, in fact, reveal a great deal to us about how we are in, with and in our attention to other objects. Why? It's the same mind. It's the same mind which is arising, which is looking at the knee and with pain, is the same mind which is looking at somebody else with pressure or pain or whatever. So it's a kind of laboratory, the body. It's a kind of facility, not only to dissolve some of the difficulties that occur with the body, but also as a, a form of relationship which tells us much about our inner life. And so the course of one single sitting from beginning through to the end can be a pretty clear, unambiguous statement of how we're living our life. Why? Same mind, same body. And sometimes we forget this when we're perhaps too attentive to trying to do it right. Too wanting to have it just so. Constantly find, trying to make everything so that the sitting posture or this or that is just as one would like it. And so the very sitting becomes a mirror and a reflection of how we handle so many other things in our life. And when we don't see that relationship 
of sitting or walking to daily life, then the mind then comes up with its own avoidance or misunderstanding. It says, and one says, but yes, but when I go back into the real world, this is the real world. This is it. If one doesn't get the insight and the clarity in uh, this situation, if one doesn't understand that relationship in life is relationship in, in, in life, then we keep making a gap and substantiating the gap between being on a retreat and being out there in the real world. This is as real as you can get because it's cutting away all that information. It's cutting away all the superfluous ideas. It's cutting away the frequency of pilgrimages to the Western Pagoda called the refrigerator. It's, <laughs> it's cut, cutting away the newspapers. It's cutting away from internet. It's cutting away from whatever. And saying, here in this event, one's life is showing itself. Clearly, unambiguously, with our approval, without any of our approval, but... This is it. That's cutting edge of meditation. Why? Same mind, same body. So one feature of the meditation, an important and an invaluable uh, one, is the area of calmness. But also in the fields, plural now, of meditation, we do hear, of course, and as there are, multiple forms of meditation which can include visuals, it can include mantras, it include energy raising, it can include uh, depth of the absorption, it can include warmth of the heart, etc. But all of this, in the totality of, of that which I just referred to, falls into the general area of calmness, well-being, and a degree of um, integration that takes place. And therefore... There's a, a growing sense of welfare, inner welfare, through the development and facilitation of those ways. And some, and some people here, uh, rather beautifully, do have and do know in day-to-day life, here and elsewhere, a great deal of calmness of, of being. There are others who will say, I'm developing this practice, I'm exploring meditation, And even though I do it hour in, hour out, day in, day out, here or in other retreats, yet I don't actually find any of this calmness that one keeps hearing about, which one is supposed to come to if one meditates well and clearly and with enough skill and effort and so forth. And if it is such that in the sitting, walking climate one isn't feeling calmness, that one does one retreat and does a, another retreat and, and it seems very infrequent and uh, momentary and that the overwhelming sense that one gets is that one's inner life and physical life is rather unsettled and agitated and depths of meditation still seem far, far away. Then one's got to be thinking and reflecting on why is that? So it's impossible, given one heart, one mind, one body, to take meditation out of the totality of one's life and somehow imagine, but 
by physically removing oneself from the known and the familiar, that therefore one deserves great depths of meditation because one's taken the, the trouble to drive to Unpleasant Street or Pleasant Street or whatever it's, whatever it's called. So if the outcome, just at the level of calmness, one field, as I say, or exploration of meditation, it's just agitation, restlessness, it goes on and on, and, and one says, I've never had any depth with the meditation, then there's no room for it. There's no room for it inside. And one wants to have it always. One wants to live a wild, busy, stressed out, neurotic life. And one wants to have great depth of meditation. <laughs> we can't have our cake and eat it. So that might mean for some to generate some time here. To put a piece of time aside, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And perhaps for once use one's mind intelligently and in the using of it intelligently to give some reflection and if one says if one wants some depth of meditation and all that potential with it one's got to make space for it in one's life in making space for it in one's life therefore what's got to go what has got to go otherwise one it, way of meditation will end up with that modern Western contemporary tragedy of Western yoga. A few stretching out of the, put it crudely, a few stretching out of the limbs and having the audacity to call it yoga. Why? Because the rest of the yoga of life, to be joined with the truth of things, to be joined with God, is all forgotten. All the other disciplines, the practices, and one important, indispensable feature is renunciation. And it gets put aside. It becomes, the yoga becomes an appendix, a little additional aid to making things a little bit easier. And it's a corruption of it. And the same can happen in meditation. It's a movement for depth and for liberation. So as I say, if we feel it in the level of calmness of things, agitation, restlessness, boredom, negativity, all of that that's going on and on with us. It has to be a fruit. It's got to be a consequence of living. It didn't just kind of mercilessly descend upon you as soon as your backside graced the cushion. It's carried. And what's it carried from? It's carried from one's our way of living and being in the world. So I say 10 or 15 minutes in a day, to look and say, what needs to change? What do I need to drop to do without? What way can I live with some wisdom and clarity? And sometimes to bring that intention there, to look purposefully, to make some resolution, and therefore to keep alive one of the beautiful uh, spirits that human beings have, which is learning to do without and feel okay about it. And sometimes learning to do without is also a great relief as well. And sometimes in our day-to-day -day life and here we, we think we can't do without. Instead of thinking, I can't live with. And yet the tendency keeps telling us the opposite of what really what the real significance is and 
the great liberations of life of learning to do without. And there's endless potential and possibilities for this here. Many, many things. And if we get a sense of that, even if it means that it generates some wave of discomfort, of doing without something, yet if we can just hang in with that wave of discomfort, it will generate the space and in that space something far better than what we had will come. As the, uh, that illiterate rabbi from Nazareth once said, he said, first find the kingdom of God, everything else will be added unto you. First make that the first priority. First find the essential truths of life, first find enlightenment, first find liberation, first discover the suchness of things, however we want to put it. And everything else will be added. And for that kind of focus and meditation as an aspect of all of that, letting go, which we hear enough about, dropping, doing without, renunciation, it belongs to that. Anyone with any metal knows renunciation. So as I say, just sometimes, just for, as part of the feature of the practice, just finding moments, some little period for, for that. Make it necessarily easier at the beginning, but one's got to be patient sometimes with the process of things. In the area of, of calmness, and there's no limit uh, potential to the depths, which are available to us. There's also the corresponding aspect too as well, of course. And the corresponding aspect is, is insight. What is an insight? How do we know when we've had an insight? What tells us that? And one of the common misunderstandings, I would say, is to confuse insight with feeling. To actually almost use the two words simultaneously. And we've probably had uh, situations where we've had a meeting or a conversation with somebody, and then uh, the person has expressed what they see as an insight. And sometimes what they express as an insight is an insight about ourselves. And then one may ask or question that, and the person then says, well, it must be true because I feel it. Oh, <laughs> you know, such confidence is alarming. Because any attentiveness in our experience and certainly in our, in our meditation ought to tell us by now that feelings change. And that in the movement in the inner life of a particular feeling towards and a feeling about and a certainty and a conviction and a persuasiveness in our mental realm, can, one minute, one day, one hour, one week later, or whatever, do a complete flip around. And what one felt was so absolutely certain, now becomes equally uncertain, or a complete dismissal. One was running on the premise that the feeling itself revealed the insight or the truth of things. And we say, but what other way can I intuit? 
What other way can I get insight? And I don't just want to, as it were, go back, as it were, to my mind. I've used my head, whoever the eye is, this for this, that and the other. And it seems sometimes we just move back and forwards, feeling one day, thinking about it the next, changing our mind, going backwards and forwards, then generating a state of uncertainty, and then we go on the hunt. And we lose the awareness, the meditation of that, and we seek out people. And somebody, we say, I don't know what to do. I really feel uncertain about this. And should I, or should I not? Or should I do something quite differently? And he or she or they give their input. And we go to somebody else and he or she gives their input. And we can get countless different messages, plus our own. And then up comes, in all of this movement, which is so unmeditative, up comes, oh, I should listen because they tell me it. I should listen to my inner voice. But one's got three going on simultaneously, all deep down inside, all giving utterly different messages. Do this, don't do it, sooner or later or never. And each of the movement that's going on inside, manifesting the thought, has tremendous conviction. <laughs> and everybody else has their views. Or oh, you must decide for yourself. No, you better go and get somebody help to decide for you. All of this goes on. It's called leaving notes on the notice board. And, and this movement that's going on, sometimes you don't realise that all of it is a distraction. All of it is just mind moving. Backwards and forwards, up and down. And in its movement, it's producing thoughts, feelings, moods, opinions, the importance of the past, the importance of the present, and the importance of the future. And all of that movement builds it up more and more, and it becomes intolerable, unbearable. There's got to be another way of living. Got to be another way of being in this world in which the inner life isn't one feature of one's mind fighting with another feature for supremacy. So in all of the context of all, all of that, feature of calmness, relaxation, learning to, learning to be, matters a great deal. When there's movement going on, and there's and, uh, shortcomings which go on with ourselves, shortage of calmness, how quickly the mind moves to the future. What happens when I leave the retreat? One's hardly arrived and one's already got one foot outside the door about where one is going to. And so there's, there's the same movement which is going on. And sometimes we think, I must remember this. I've got to be able to recall this. This is really important. And it generates its own pressure. And we forget it's not school with a capital S. There are no qualifications. You don't get any certificate at the end of your eight days. And we couldn't care less if anybody knows you've been on a retreat or not. So, so 
The relaxation and the calmness requires, as Gaia was speaking yesterday evening, it requires faith. It requires trust. It requires a way of saying to oneself, what's useful, beneficial, which gives a fresh way of understanding, must be absorbed by itself. One's got to be at ease with things. And in that being at ease with heart, being, cellular life begins to absorb understanding. And in its absorption of the understanding, it serves one well. But trying to remember, thinking that one's got to be able to recall this and be able to pull on that important point that was said in the talk or that important point that arose in a meditation or at a mealtime or in a dream or whatever. It's a useless way. It's a lack of trust. It's a, a fixed idea that one is trying to keep something. If it's valid, if it's insight, if it's worthwhile, if it's appropriate, it keeps itself. All the mind's efforts to try and hold on to something is defeating wisdom. So I say it's radically different from conventional ways of learning. So calmness with insight. Insight with calmness. Sometimes we say, oh, it's like there's a hyphen between the two. But not always and not necessarily so. One can be passing through the day, interested in being with the breath, interested in being with the body, interested in eating mindfully, walking mindfully, being a caring, sensitive human being. And unexpectedly, Without any preparation, without any planning or any prior thought whatsoever, something moves and impacts on consciousness. And it can be a, a shock. A shock. And that shock could be about anything. Sometimes the shock is, I'm whatever, 50, 60 years old and I've wasted my existence. And that goes on in meditation halls regularly. The shock can be, my God, the way I've been treating somebody for all of these years is an abomination of human activity. And one doesn't know where that sudden release and flash or insight suddenly has come from. Come out of the silence, yes. Come out of the calmness, yes. Come out of the meditations, yes. And it shakes one. Sometimes people shake from head to foot with something that stood out, that was neglected, forgotten, overlooked, dismissed, undermined for a long, long time. But it's an insight. Might be painful, might be hard to bear with and stay with, but it's an insight. It reveals and shows something which was not revealed and not shown. And so it can come in its painful and in its dramatic form. And these teachings are unmistakable in pointing to that. 
It's not like one is saying in the Dharma practice and teachings, oh, insights come, therefore calmness comes and bliss comes and enlightenment and nirvana suddenly are all dangling on the end of the insight. Sometimes the insight comes and the immediate thoughts afterwards, God, I wish I never had it. It's impersonal in its revelation. So the wave after an insight which is painful, Buddha speaks about this, of course, frequently. The difficulty is in the aftermath of it, can we hang in and stay steady with it? Not through a lot of thinking about, not through a a tremendous amount of mulling over in all the ways that we can do, but we just acknowledge the simple, clear, unambiguous truth of what comes through and shown something to us. And sometimes in those painful forms of insight which arise, that then there is some potential, some expansion, opening of consciousness, which in a way says to us, right, what's it going to be now? Living in the old, or the insight and the emergence of the uh, insight through the meditation which expresses something differently. With insight and its uh, relationship to calmness there, we can kind of think sometimes along the lines that insight is something which immediately happens in the here and now. It has some impact and drama maybe to it. And it's clear and obvious well-defined and beneficial. You have these kind of associations frequently with insight. But in fact, the quality or the temperature of the experience of insight actually doesn't mean too much at all. So that in other words, in the climate and in the culture that we all generate here, things occur here which we'll hardly notice, hardly pick up whatsoever at any level of our being. Not, nothing clear, nothing outstanding, nothing special, nothing dramatic, nothing mind-blowing, nothing, nothing, nothing. And we say, oh, I went and sat on this retreat at IMS, or as I sometimes say here, I'm a mess, can I help you? <laughs> and... And we sat and we walked, we ate and we listened, and we sat and we walked and we ate and we listened and then we went to bed and the next day, guess what? We sat and we walked, etc. And that becomes the recollection of the time. And therefore one will say, oh, no special, nothing special happened, didn't get any flashbang wallops or anything, and uh, it was just another week in my life. And one has the right to say that, think that, feel that, and so forth. From the standpoint of insight, things don't work so obviously and so overtly. And what that means is, just because nothing happens, nevertheless, in the absorption that's going on, again, another key word in Dharma teachings, in the absorption that's going on, the self 
the I, the me, the my, actually doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> it just doesn't. And it's a deception of the self that we think we know what's going on. And in the culture of absorption, inwardly, outwardly, both, neither, that's going on, it can be, and as some of you know through your experience, that days, weeks, months, years later, the insight flowers. Something that was a passing, inconsequential, didn't matter at all event becomes a significant turning point in one's life. We have no idea in this situation what's being absorbed which will contribute to our awakening and liberation. And when someone has a, a big dramatic experience, it can be certainly the signal and the indicator of a significant shift of consciousness through the insight, through the understanding, through the penetration which has emerged. But there are just as many examples and illustrations where all the drama, all the profound spiritual language and description hasn't made an iota of difference in the person's life. And they get out of here, get into their car, drive off, and it's like they just had had a week in the wine bar. Made no relevance to the life. Yet there was the fulsomeness of description and sensations and feelings that were going on at the time. So size and drama, or quietness and hardly noticeable, is not necessarily the standpoint at all from the standpoint of insight into life. Yet we can get so impressed with others, what they have to say. Let me say, God, I've never had that. <laughs> so, moving and the comparing, whether it's small groups or inquiries or whatever it might be, as I say, self doesn't really know. How could it be sufficiently alert in the vastness and in the diversity of things to really have a sense of what's running deep? How could it? One only has to take one 45-minute evening talk. Whole stream of threads and themes being referred to. Hopefully one is listening with some uh, interest and awareness. There's an attentiveness, hopefully, to what's being said. How can the self know what's important to you? I may say, oh, that point in the talk, that was a good point, I should bear that in mind, or whatever. <laughs> Do you think the rest of one's being are going to take any notice of that <laughs> silly little inconsequential idea that's arisen? Self doesn't know. So it's as though we can just allow ourselves to be with the moment of life, to be receptive to the, the unfoldment of existence there, and see what flowers out of it. See what's insightful. See what's clarifying. See what's worthwhile. 
And if it took seven days of hardcore meditation, morning, noon and night, and the insight didn't come until the last day of your life, and it was short-lived but it was clear, every moment in the meditation would have been worthwhile just for that one insight. As the Buddha said, better to live one day with an insight than to live a hundred years in ignorance and blindness. That's teaching. So we explore the um, meditatively, sit, walk, stand, recline, eat, listen, etc. Place of calmness, the value of it for its depth and receptivity. We diligently work with the obstructions that take place. If we find there are so much obstructions, as I said, we make some time in our day here for a little reflection. Mind is so cluttered and, and possessed and caught up and agitated. That means there's no space. Why is there no space? Because something about the way we live isn't allowing it to take place. Therefore, something has to change and therefore something has to go. Therefore, it means renunciation. There's no way around it. No way around it. And every monk and every nun worth their salt knows that and the uniform of every monk and every nun is a reminder to us, a good external reminder to us that some things have to go for something else deep to come. And we can make some time for that here. And finally, in that receptivity which takes place, the attentiveness inwardly as well as outwardly can be a catalyst for seeing well and seeing clearly. And in our seeing well and seeing clearly, we see the relevance of the eye as it arises. But we're not, as I said earlier, kind of convinced that the eye has the handle on existence. Not a Existence unfolds itself, it flows itself, it reveals itself, it shows itself, and a little minor incidental feature of all of that is the appearance of the eye in it. And most of the important things in life which has ever happened to us was not because of the eye, but in spite of it. Life unfolds itself, and a feature is the eye but it's not the centre of the life stage. And that silence and stillness of being ought to make it clear to us. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live with calmness. May all beings live with insight. May all beings enlighten existence.